Hi everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Monica Parker to talk with her about her brand new book, The Power of Wonder. This is one of my favorite books that I've read this year, and it is, uh, it's just so good. And we're going to get into a lot about the book, but um, there's just so much stuff in the book that we couldn't even cover. And so, you know, highly recommend picking up this book. And if you want to continue to learn from me and all of the different things that I am currently learning from and some of the things um, that have got me wondering or, you know, provoking my wonder, you know, what you could do is subscribe to my Substack, to where I give all sorts of different recommendations for some of the things that I am learning from, from books to movies to music to articles to, uh, I was going to say songs, but that's also music. Um, just basically anything that is capturing my wonder, some of the things that I am deep diving on and wanting to learn more about. And I think that's one of the great things about wonder is that you could literally wonder about anything. It could capture pretty much anything and everything can capture your imagination. And that's so much of what we're about here on the Learner's Corner is learning from everything and from everything, from everyone and from anyone. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Monica and then we are going to jump into the conversation. Monica Parker is a, a world-renowned speaker, writer, and authority on the future of work. She has spent decades helping people discover how to lead and live wonderfully. The founder of global human analytics and change consultancy Hatch, whose clients include blue chip companies such as LinkedIn, Google, Prudential, and Lego. Parker, or she challenges corporate systems to advocate for more meaningful work lives. In addition to her extensive advocacy work, she has been an opera singer, a museum exhibition, exhibition, yeah, designer, man. Sometimes it just really sucks when we really struggle with reading sometimes. And she has been a homicide investigator defending death row inmates. She is a lover of arts, literature, and Mexican food, and she and her family split their time between Atlanta, London, and Nice, and she's actually in New York, which she mentions in the conversation. Her wonder bringers include travel, fellowship with friends, and Trey Anstancio's guitar. And so without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Monica, it is so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, and just as we're getting started, you know, you've written this book, The Power of Wonder, and I thought it might be uh, fun to go back and just explore when did you first, you know, think about wonder? When did, you know, your journey with wonder begin? Yes, yeah, so I guess in some ways, I it's always been a part of my life, but I probably didn't have the language yet to describe it. Um, but when it started in earnest was I set out to write a book, honestly, about change management, which in retrospect, probably would have been pretty freaking boring. And um, what I did was I was trying to understand because my whole life, my professional life has been helping people manage change, big existential change, things like working with people on um, death row and and helping them manage the that whole uh, criminal justice system men uh families with uh children with disabilities or even in the corporate sphere where huge chunks of people lose their jobs and i 
started looking at my own experience and then the research and realized that people who held their world in a great degree of wonder seemed to be more resilient, more better able to change. And so I sort of fell down this wonder rabbit hole. And four years later, I, I wrote a book. So there we ended up. Yeah. Can you take me back to like when you were a kid and like, what were some of the things that captured your wonder as a kid? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've always been a little bit of a nerd. I don't see that as a pejorative. I don't see that as an insult. And so, um, nerdy I'm, wonder. I'm there with you. Been a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, ever since I was a kid, things around space, things around history, um, have always fascinated me. Things around anthropology, thinking how people, you know, a thousand years ago viewed the world. Um, I've always loved stuff like that. Um, I'm not a huge nature person, but I've always loved the ocean. So being near the ocean and seeing the vastness of that has always been a wonder bringer for me. And then as a, as a singer myself, music plays an outside role in my, in my sort of wonder bringing. It's, it's a huge component for me. Um, when I hear music, it, it moves me in a, in a really fundamental way. So I would say ever since I was a kid, I've carried those with me. Yeah. What's like, uh a recent like deep dive that you've gone into could be history or anthropology or even music, just that you said that um, like, you can't stop thinking about it right now. Oh yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. I'm in New York right now for the launch of the book. And even just being in New York is a huge wonder bringer. There's so much novelty and so much going on. My most recent one would probably be, there was an exhibition by an anthropologist here um, who in the sixties, and this was kind of the way they did anthropology then is she basically immersed herself with this, um, community in the Amazons dressed like them, lived with them for decades and took pictures. And so this was a collection of her work. Um, and in the end, tragically, they were, you know, many of them were massacred by, uh, um, by industrialists and she sort of helped them start to have their voice and the pieces this artwork and her photography was just incredible. It was so immersive. And then interviews on film, I saw that recently and um, it blew my mind. I can't stop thinking about it. So that's a recent one for me, for sure. What about you? Yeah. Anything that's been wonder bringing for you lately? Um, I I would say that um, I am I am also a very nerd, and I could get I could get down like this like a great story very well, and so um, just in the past few years, I've really become a lot more interested in like I loved comics as a kid, and like a few years ago, I just decided like who says that that stuff has to be just for kids, and so there's um and so there's just been like this great pirate comic that I've loved. It's called One Piece, and um the world building character building all that stuff and so like that's probably like my biggest like deep dive right now just wanted to learn everything about it i'm i'm i found myself reading about pirates now and it's just i absolutely love whatever just stuff like that happens because it's just so much fun exploring all of that stuff that's that deep curiosity that we talk about in the yeah. book right where you allow yourself to really become immersed and absorbed and it, it can I love world building and that is definitely one of the things that can help us become absorbed and um and that narrative quality is so such a wonder bringer that's great yeah can you talk to me more about like how how stories and wonder 
interact and like the relationship between both of those? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Stories are fundamental to how we understand ourselves as humans. I mean, even just going back to when you're a little kid and you say, oh, tell me when mommy and daddy met or tell me how I was made. Um, you know, and even if it's an adoption story, tell me how I came into your life. And so that is in essence, the story of ourselves, right? And we love stories. And part of it is because it helps us connect dots and create a level of what's known as coherence, really helps us understand where we fit into the rest of the world. And when we do that, stories frequently help give us a sense of perspective. And so when we start to have perspective, when a story is vast, and has lots of detail, then what it does is we see that we're one small component part. Even if we're the hero of the story, we're still one small component part of a bigger system. And when we see ourselves as a bigger system, um, as a small component part in a bigger system, then that is a wonder bringer. The other element is that um, stories, when we tell stories about ourselves, when we can, um, especially when we reflect like in narrative journaling on stories of wonder, it helps us relive it. And so if we use narrative, um, journaling and write stories about ourselves and our experience with wonder, then it helps us tap back into that feeling, um, again, and basically relive that moment of wonder. Mm. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to um, another wonder thing that you mentioned as well is history. And I always love, you know, anytime that somebody brings up history and their love for history, I love just asking what's, you know, something in the last couple of years, a historical event or a, a time period or something like that, that you've learned about that um, was just, it was, is wonder invoking to you. Yeah. I actually just read an article recently about women in, in, um, in the quote unquote dark ages, right? Um, so, you know, we're talking say 1200 to 1500 AD. And what they said is that while we always have a concept of women during that period of time being, you know, almost chattel, right? That they had no rights. But in fact, that would tended to be more the aristocrats who were sort of the women were sort of traded almost as property. But the um, in that period of time, that middle ages time, um, the middle class women actually had a lot of freedom and they were able to own pubs and and um, and run their own businesses and really were sort of badasses. And I don't think I ever had that concept of women like having that kind of empowerment. And it was really cool. So this was an article. I want to say it might have been in the Atlantic. I can't remember something, that kind of thing. And now I've started like picking up these historical fiction and also historical books about women of that era, because I think that that's fascinating. I always had the impression that they sort of were disempowered until, you know, the early 1900s. But in fact, they, yeah. they did have a lot of control. And so that's been something I've been really thinking is fascinating lately. Oh, that's really cool. I love that. I'll, uh, I'll have to check that out and see if that is in the Atlantic or just look around for that. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that you write about and uh, you touch on in the book and you mention this, and, and this isn't a surprise to anybody, is, you know, as as we grow up, we become a little bit more jaded. And we are in, like, I don't know if anybody, like, explicitly says, I don't want you to wonder. But that's mm. the message that we get. And that, and so I would just love to, you know, get your perspective on like, what are some of the things that like leads us or help like almost makes us jaded to mm. wonder, you know, as we grow up, you know, move into middle school and high school and, you know, college and adulthood and all of that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in essence, I mean, we do, they do say stop wondering when they say stop daydreaming or what are you daydreaming about? Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I, the number of report cards that came home and said, Monica likes to daydream. I do wonder what she's thinking about. Well, I'm thinking about everything. And daydreaming is so good for us, at least the positive kind of daydreaming. There's a few different types. The positive constructive daydreaming is incredibly helpful for us. And so we do tend to get that um, really beaten out of us um, uh, through the standardized testing of our school system. So when we're very, very young, you know, at the age of like Montessori, things like that in kindergarten, it's encouraged. But as we start to get into more formalized schooling, standardized testing really does send the message that there is a single right answer and you are judged on the single right answer. Well, that doesn't allow for exploration. It doesn't allow for nuance. It doesn't allow for um, that deep curiosity. It's just about, okay, you have the answer. Now we move on to the next set of questions where you have to have. And that really persists through high school and even to some degree in college. In advanced education, say in graduate school, you're sometimes allowed that freedom. But I spoke to one um, uh, professor who said he feels that um, uh, MBAs, so business school, is actually creating psychopaths. He says it's even worse than, mm. than grade school because it's so competitive. And that's another reason why it sort of gets driven out of us. Competition or being in, uh, in competition with others is not really conducive to wonder. This is wonder is sort of a group sport um, frequently. It's a, it's a collective emotional experience. And so as we grow, that is sort of the system, the systemic element. And then there's just the physiological. The way that our brains work is when we're little, we are laying down all these neural pathways. And what these building blocks of how our brain perceives things is called schema. And so we build these schema and over time, every time we experience something, we go, oh, okay, I understand what that is. And that becomes another schema. Well, by the time we're, you know, in our late teens, early 20s, we have so many schema that our brain sees stuff and goes, oh, I understand that. And then puts it in a box rather than really slowing down and saying, wait, wait, I know I understand the contours of this or I understand the concept, but there's more detail here that I can't possibly understand. We can't always know everything that's going on. So I think some of this is that our schema wants to quickly put stuff back into a box and we uh, move through it. And then the third element is that we're always so in such a hurry. You know, we're always mm -hmm. so fast. And when we're fast, we lean on our cognitive shortcuts. And so then our brain says, nothing to see here, keep moving. And so we sort of convince ourselves that there's nothing to be wonder filled about. Mm. There's so much in there that I just want to follow up on. I think the first thing is, <laughs> sure. you know, talk to me about um, the single right answer. Cause I think that's one of the big ideas that resonated with me and like what, because I, I would, I would imagine that, I mean, we're really good just as humans. I think we're really good at deceiving ourselves. And so we could go, Oh yeah, of course there isn't a single right answer. Um, but talk to me about like, what does the subtleness of the single right answer look like? Like, what are some mm. of the subtle ways of which we find that showing up? Yep. Yeah. So there's these two concepts that I talk about the book in the book. Um, one is called need for cognition and the other is called need for cognitive closure. And while they are not on the same spectrum, people who tend to be high in need for cognition is low, are low in need for cognitive closure and vice versa. So need for cognition is how nerdy do you like to be? Like how much do you like to explore ideas? 
how much do you feel comfortable with, you know, um, uh, the, uh, the exploring big ideas, talking to other people about different thinking, and then you have need for cognitive closure. And that's how comfortable are you with sitting in the unknowing? How quickly do you need to move to closing down a conversation or an idea and say, we have the answer now? The challenge is, is people who are high in need for cognitive closure are low in need for cognition. They don't want to keep exploring. It makes them actually uncomfortable. It's almost like an itchy feeling. They want to know they have the answer. But the challenge is, is people who are high in need for cognitive closure who find that answer, they also tend to be a little bit more intolerant. They like to know that everybody has their place. Even if it means that their place is below someone else, that clarity is very helpful. You know, other things that are really clear, autocratic leaders, um, discrimination, like, so these different systems that say you fit in this box, even if that box is not based on anything except what someone else says. And so what ends up happening, the nuance of this is that we don't feel comfortable in black and white. We are, or they feel comfortable in black and white. They don't feel comfortable in gray. They don't feel comfortable holding two competing ideas in their brain at the same time. And so what ends up happening is you grow a, a set of a, a population of people who are um, uncomfortable with nuance, who really want to rush to that answer and then feel really great comfort when everyone um, sort of follows the rules. And that's not always great for exploration, for innovation, for tolerance, for diversity. Um, and so it really can show up in a lot of different ways. And I do think we see that in a much in a, in a world that is becoming increasingly polarized. And that's oh, yeah. where we're getting that is that people go on both sides, say, no, I've got the answer. And I don't even want to talk about anything that exists in the middle. And I think that we're seeing that certainly in our um, in our uh, online environment. And the problem is, is the people who run those online environments, they know this science and they are operating so that we keep chasing the things that force our beliefs and, and move us away from nuance. Mm -hmm. How do you go about breaking out of that single right answer mindset? Because like we all, we all have an area or areas or will have an area or areas to where we're just sensitive. And it's like, no, this is the way that it is. How do we go about like breaking out of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for starters, you know, um, try to get out of reinforcing echo chambers online. That is a really difficult thing. So follow people that you disagree with just to understand sort of the language that they're using and and what it is that they're saying. Um, have conversations with different people, people different from yourself, people who hold different opinions and really just try to converse with them about stuff that you assumed was um was 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 wrote was just fact also get comfortable with mixed emotions so mixed emotions like wonder like um like nostalgia like gratitude these are all emotions where you they're they're duly valenced meaning they're not 100% positive or 100% negative they have a little bit of each when we hold mixed emotions in our mind they actually help us with paradoxical thinking they help us um, uh, believe that there are more, there's more than one way to view the world. Yeah. I want to touch on, uh, hurry that you talked about and how that can affect us. And one of the things that I've been, um, 
trying to add a lot more to my life is like a ref- like basically just like a reflective timer. You, you know, you mentioned dreaming, like a dreaming time, like things that that. Um, can you talk about the role that reflection can play in like wonder as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I call it slow thought, and this is one of the challenges: is that when we're w- rushed, our brain our brain wants to work as efficiently as possible. It's just an ancient, you know, mechanism. Of course, if we were to pay attention to everything that happened in our sphere, it would make us insane, quite literally, because there's so much stimulus. And so what ends up happening is our brain says, "Okay, I'm going to, you know, put everything in its boxes and work as efficiently as possible. I'm going to go down these mental ruts that I've been creating since I was born. Um, But one of the challenges there is that, of course, when we're rushed, we lean on those mental shortcuts even more often. And sometimes those mental shortcuts take us right past wonder because we're simply not noticing it. We don't notice the little details. We see a tree and we go, oh, that's a tree. And then we don't notice how the wind is making the leaves move. And it almost looks like little mirrors twinkling in the sky. Like we just don't see it. We go tree. Well, okay, but there, take a minute, take a, what more is there? You know, take a little breath. So I think that that's where slowing down, reflecting, and we can train our brain to be less reactive. So things like um, meditation, what is the best kind of meditation for this, um, for being more wonder prone, anything that you practice, all meditation shares a common theme, and that is slowing down the chattering mind. Narrative journaling is another great way to do that. And then introducing novelty in a way that forces us to notice it is another way to slow down. Yeah. I know that you did like so much research throughout this between, you know, organizations, your own, your own organization, your own work, a lot of different people. Um, Can you give me like an example or one that stands out to you of like, who's an organization or a person that you go, wow, this person or this company gets wonder pretty well. Not, not perfect, but they do it pretty well. Yeah, I mean, there's so many interesting people that I came across. I would say that um, one of the ones that I, one of the pieces of research that almost feels tangential to um, to the work, but that really struck me would be David Eagleman. So David mm-hmm. Eagleman is a, um, a, a scientist. He's done incredible research around the brain. He even has a, um, a PBS show that looks at it. And one of the pieces of research he did was specifically on in-grouping and out-grouping, which connects to this idea of the need for cognitive closure, where he looked at how um, uh, when we decide that someone is in our out-group, which means they're not part of our tribe, how our brain quite literally just turns off our sense of empathy for them. And people will say, that's not true. Like, I wouldn't behave that way. We all think that. But the reality is, is that we do. And he talks about time as well. So this idea that that um, if we experience something that is awe-bringing or wonder-bringing to us, that it actually slows down our our concept of time and actually makes us feel like time is slower and we encode memories more deeply. So his work has just um, been really, really moving. I think it's it's fascinating. I think some of the work that's being done around psychedelics um, is really incredible. So Dr. David Nutt, who is a British... um, uh, a, a British researcher who is really spearheading psychedelic research um, in the UK. And then certainly Dr. Keltner, who is someone who um, has been researching awe for probably about 25 years. He's done some really cool stuff as well. 
Yeah. Talk to me more about like the psychedelic nature and you touch on that in the book, but kind of how that plays into wonder and how that, how that works. Absolutely. So psychedelics um, were being studied in earnest and um, you know, they were developed. um, Well, we'll say natural psychedelics like mushrooms and, um, and different cacti, they've been used um, generally um, in a, um, a religious or spiritual context for millennia. Um, but the mm-hmm. first, um, uh, the first man-made psychedelic LSD, um, uh, developed in the, uh, right at the advent of World War II and then studied really in earnest until the sixties when pretty much the U S government decided that it was, it was getting a little out of hand and they shut everything down and that became a global movement. So we just stopped researching psychedelics, but beforehand we could already see the potential for psychedelics to really help with things like addiction, with depression, um, and with any element that is indicative of a, a rumination, like a a, 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 a a negative or um, destructive ruminative mind. So where things just keep cycling, 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 we can't get out of that. Mm-hmm. Now that we're able to research them again, what we find is that people who have a psychedelic experience are able to metabolize really difficult times in their life. Now, the question always was, well, how? And it was sort of assumed that it was probably some kind of chemical reaction, like most other drugs. But what's really interesting about um, psychedelics is they say it's not the chemical, it's it's the subjective experience that occurs. Now, what's interesting is that the U.S. government has said consistently, although they are allowing us to test it more, um, is saying, well, if it's the subjective experience, that it's not actually the drug, it's just a placebo. Well, it's sort of like, well, it it end up, ends up being a bit of a semantic argument. But what we do know is that when addicts have a psychedelic experience, their addiction almost disappears. Um, not not all, everyone. Obviously, I'm speaking in hyperbole here, just yeah. for for um uh, to make a point. But and the reason is is because psychedelics create a sense of perspective where you feel like a smaller component part of a bigger system. You almost can sense the um the enormity of what is the universe and you also start to tap into the self-transcendence of wonder and so you're having this self-transcendent experience where you you rise above your own egoic needs and in that you are able to recognize the destruction that your um, addiction has on yourself and your, you know, the people around you. The same thing with existential depression, and I think that this is where it really is the most powerful. And I actually think it's it's almost unethical that governments would uh, deny people this treatment. Say you've been told that you have between two and five years to live, right? And all you can think about is, well, when is the end? Is it two? Mm -hmm. Is it three? Is it four? How much time? And the little time you have is robbed from you because you begin to obsess about your, the end of your life. And what we know is that people then who have a psychedelic experience are able to recognize that there probably is an afterlife, that the life you have now is worth 
honoring and that the fear disappears. And I think that is the greatest gift that we could ever give a person who has been given a terminal illness. So I am very passionate about the potential. I think we need to continue to research it. I'm not saying it's a cure-all. I'm not saying kids go out and drop some acid this weekend and think you're going to fix everything in your life. But I do think that the potential is incredible and it's all about the wonder experience. So I think we can find that in the quotidian. We don't have to go out. It's not going to be as strong but we don't have to go out and and have a psychedelic we can still find elements of that in our day-to-day life Mm -hmm. yeah along with that you also just touch on like some of the health benefits that just come from from wondering and from that that sense of awe can you talk about some of those yeah absolutely i mean the, I think that was probably one of the things that struck me the most were the physiological benefits. And you asked about research. That's another great piece of research done by Craig Anderson and Jennifer Seller mm. um, around um, the with people with PTSD um, and how wonder helps reroute their neural pathways. But what we know is that wonder appears to do a few things. First, it lowers our uh, stress hormones, so it reduces our cortisol levels. Um, It reduces our blood pressure. And then the piece that I find most striking is it reduces what's known as our pro-inflammatory cytokines. So these pro-inflammatory cytokines are, um, when we're actually sick, our body will release these um, pro-inflammatory cytokines to to, uh, create inflammation in order to heal us. And then our body will um, release anti-inflammatory cytokines and the two battle it out. And that's basically how we get better. But the problem is, is if our body releases those when we're not actually sick. So our body will release those when we're stressed. Um, They're released. We know they're a marker of things like Alzheimer's or um, heart disease, um, uh, of diabetes. So when they're released, when we're not actually sick, it makes us sick. And what we know is that wonder actually lowers these pro-inflammatory cytokines. So there, the belief is that, that there is evidence of a direct biological pathway between more wonder and better physiological health. And I think that that is just shocking. Like it's just striking. It's not just about the psychology. There is a true mind-body connection um, that makes us healthier. Mm-hmm. There's so much great stuff in the book. And one of the things that I feel like you you take such a nebulous topic like wonder and you break it down and you make it so um, to, like you're able to get your hands around it. And like one mm. of the things that you do such a good job with that is like you talk about the elements of wonder and kind of how elements are broken down and, and almost like a process for mm. there's there's so much in that that I just want to unpack but can you maybe just give us like a general overview of what that process sure. looks like and then uh there's uh, there's just so much that I want to follow up on after that so when I went to look at wonder you, you know wonder as a word is something of a shapeshifter right so there's wonder as the verb to wonder which is really sort of curiosity but then there's wonder as a noun to experience a wonder which is more mm-hmm. of the sort of the outcome or the catalyst of awe So my goal was to try to link those two. And so what I ended up doing is sort of creating an emotional experience or almost, it's almost like a cycle. So it starts with um, uh, what I call, so I break it down into five elements, watch, wander, whittle, wow, and woe. So we start with watch, which is the psychological term of openness to experience. This is a personality trait. It's something that all of us have some to some degree. It's pretty much set by the time we're 25. 
And openness to experience is one of the big five personality traits. And really when we are, the more open we are, then the more likely we are to experience the other elements of the wonder cycle. Then we go into watch and that is curiosity. I'm clear to make the distinction between surface curiosity and um, deep curiosity. There are a lot of different sort of models of curiosity that have been explored for probably about the last 75 years or so, maybe a little bit more. But what's interesting is most of them seem at least two factors and sometimes even as many as five or six factors. But there's a general um, agreement that there's the kind of curiosity that is like the Google search to settle a bet or the, oh, what was that noise? You know, that kind of thing, um, as opposed to, you know, what's the nature of the fo a folded universe? You know, the, the, the deep curiosity. So when I talk about Wanda, I'm talking about deep epistemic, you know, um, knowledge seeking for the basis of knowledge seeking, just for the enjoyment of it, curiosity. Then we get into whittle, which is absorption. So um, in order for us to, when after we become curious, we sort of fall down a rabbit hole. And this can either be in the sense of like flow, um, where we get into the flow and we don't notice what's happening around us, or it can just be where we pair back distractions. And you can do that. We talked about that through slow thought or, or other elements. But this is where we really focus, become absorbed. And that's when we allow ourselves to notice all the details that then moves us potentially into wow and woe. And wow and woe are the two components of awe. And the reason that awe gets two words is because awe really has sort of two states. So the first is where we go, wow. We experience something that makes that is so vast that it makes us feel like a small component part of a bigger system. And then whoa, where we go, mind blown, like that was incredible. And now our brain has changed because of it. And what ends up happening is this sort of the cycle, because then once you experience that, you're more likely to be more open which makes you more curious, which helps you become more absorbed, which has you experience more awe. So even if you don't get to an awe every time, just by practicing these elements, we start to craft a wonder mindset and we become more wonder prone. Um, so that's sort of the the basic components as I describe them. Yeah, you know, I, I wanna go back to like the first stage watch and you, you know, you one of the key components of that is openness and you know, that personality trait that you mentioned. Um, and I would just love to, you know, just ask your opinion on like, okay, so if you realize, okay, I find myself, you know, being more closed either to like a specific situation and like, how do you go about like almost like reopening yourself up to yourself? Because like, that's that, like, that's literally something like it just happened to me yesterday. Like I, I was just, um, I was, I was just reflecting a little bit and I realized, oh, okay. i I find myself closed off to the certain place, the certain area. And it's hard for me to re-engage in that. Mm. And I don't really know what the path forward is. So I guess I'm even asking like for, for myself of like, how, how can you go about like reopening yourself to that? So one of the great ways to do this is really around novelty and just exercising your brain. So just trying to, mm -hmm. as a starter, just trying to experience new things, even like wearing your watch on a different wrist can get your brain out of the neural rut. So that's one of the first ways. Mm -hmm. The other is to really, it links directly with curiosity, but it's to really try to engage with new. So when we talk about openness to experience, we're really talking about openness to different ideas. So we make that point that what we find is that openness to experience as a, um, as a personality trait is very broad. But when we look at it from a wonder bringing 
point of view, just trying to expose ourselves to different ideas. So even if you feel that you're closing yourself off to a certain area that still feels too, I don't know, maybe too emotionally charged or too difficult mm -hmm. for you, or just it feels like you can't get over it, then expose yourself to new ideas in another way. Just practice that muscle and see if you can get closer and closer to the place that you feel that you're being closed off about. But it's really about exposing yourself to new thinking, new ideas, new types of people, um, rather than it just being about, oh, well, experience, I'm going to go have a different uh, ice cream flavor today, which is great. That's a start. Yeah. But really, it's more helpful if you can just try to expose yourself to to thinking that you have, haven't experienced before. Mm -hmm. Is there an example that you thought of, you know, either, you know, in your research or even just in your own life that you've experienced? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, this is this, this, uh, this politically charged culture that we're in where everything is so polarized, I do tend to sometimes find myself um, wanting to close off to the conversations yeah. that I feel sit on sort of a spectrum away from mine. Um, but also, you know, the reality is, is that growing up in the South, a lot of the people that um, a lot, a lot of people that I love and um, have cared about my whole life sit in that camp. Um, yeah. And so I really just try to force myself to continue to keep an open dialogue, not to the extent of my mental health, you know, not to the yeah. expense of my mental health, not to the expense of, um, of emboldening people if they're behaving in a way that is exclusionary, but still trying to keep that dialogue and always recognizing that, that, the world is big enough for lots of ideas and um, that in that dialogue, there is richness and an opportunity to um, to keep continue to keep ourselves open. So that's something that I find myself mm. always doing is trying to say, OK, let's just try. Let's try to have that conversation yeah. again and see if yeah. we glean just a few more little, you know, micro steps closer to not agreeing with that person, but to understanding their position. This isn't about us, you know, giving up our principles, but it's about trying to understand who they are as a human and why the constellation of their skin suit and their spirituality and their soul chooses that position because we're all at the end of the day, just seeking to exist and, mm. and have a great life, you know? Yeah. Talk to me about that tension between agreement and understanding, because that is, I mean, just what you're talking about, that is a component of wonder. Like you do try mm -hmm. to learn about things, but you don't necessarily have to endorse it. You don't necessarily have to say, hey, I, you know, state my approval on it, but you do want to understand it more. Talk mm. to me about that tension that you find. And I think that's where we get into this idea of the need for cognition and need for cognitive closure. Because if you say, well, I know the answer. I don't have any interest. Why, why would I have any interest in understanding what this other person, because I know the answer. Well, that's why I say they're not on the same continuum, but they do tend mm -hmm. to sort of be opposites because you might say, well, I know the answer. Well, I feel I know the answer, you know, a more open way to say, I feel I have an answer I'm comfortable with, but I want to understand more. So let me try to understand the thinking behind this. What was the genesis of this, this, this decision? Or what are the elements that uh, of this thinking that I can see connecting points to my thinking? Or even what are the basis? So what, what are the, um, the anchors? So my anchor is this thing. And yet, if we think of like a compass, you know, my compass point is here, but how far am I willing to swing outside in the circle? And where do our circles intersect? Where is that Venn diagram? Where is the meeting point? 
and then see if maybe your circle of of understanding or tolerance maybe can grow even just you know a little bit greater so that that connecting point in the Venn diagram becomes bigger and bigger so really I think it's it comes down to that desire to know that true curiosity about other people, not, you know, what did you have for dinner last night or tell me about the weather, but like, tell me what matters to you and what brings you joy and pain. Um, even just what's your wonder bringer. I mean, that's a great way. I, I mean, people can't argue about that. That's a great mm -hmm. connecting point. But I think that uh, it, we, we have such, we are, we are, we are becoming increasingly calcified in our thinking and I think that um, the opportunity to just say, you know, I I am not coming to you with the desire to prove my point. I'm actually coming to you with a desire to understand your position and just to know, to know more, not mm -hmm. to agree, not to endorse, not to change my mind or even change your mind, just to know. And I think that that would be powerful if we could enter into conversations like that. I love that question. What's your wonder bringer? Like one of the one of the things that I love um, just asking people from time to time is like, what are some of your favorite questions to ask people? And I'm definitely gonna have to I'm gonna have to add that to my to my back pocket and everything. Um, I love it. Yeah, I, I want to touch on uh, the next stage, which is uh, wander, which deals with curiosity. And this almost like this this question oh. It almost seems counterproductive just because, you know, in curiosity, some of it is not necessarily about being effective. Some of it is just following the path. Yeah. But um, is there anything that, or what, what have you just learned about like how to hone like our skill at being curious? Curiosity is definitely a muscle. Um, and curiosity and empathy, I think just sort of connecting to what we were talking about earlier, curiosity and empathy are very deeply linked. We know that people who are genuinely, genuinely curious about other people are more empathetic. I mean, at the essence, that is what empathy is. It's just like, I have a genuine curiosity about your human condition and therefore mm -hmm. I will share that. So I think that um, the more, the more that we practice it, the greater, uh, the, the greater the muscle becomes. The key is that technology really makes it so easy for us to engage in surface curiosity. Again, oh, I Google search that and then I stop and then the link comes closed. We want to, but technology can, if we allow it to be, be a great epistemic curiosity um, muscle, you know, builder. But I think that the more that we stay curious, again, of ideas about different thinking, the more that we enjoy it for just the process of, of gaining that knowledge, I think could be really powerful. I find curiosity fascinating also in that there was a description that curiosity almost created like a um, like a vortex. So like a knowledge vortex. So if we're curious about one thing, genuinely curious about one thing, but then layer in stuff that we really don't care about in between, our brain will still suck it in and, and embed it. So our brain loves curiosity because it helps us learn things and store them in um, long-term learning. So basically what happens is um, uh, curiosity in essence changes the structure of our brain. So as we're curious about something, um, our dopamine will, um, will uh, trigger to try to have a seek, um, to go into the seeking information mode. And then um, we're rewarded uh, when we find that thing that we're curious about. We're rewarded again with um, uh, a, a jolt of, of feel-good chemicals, of endorphins, and we then embed that information into our long-term memory. 
So what I find is that if we continue to seek out information that we're interested in, even if we layer in things we're not, we will still remember them. So it's a great trick. Um, you know, math is not one of my favorite subjects, but yeah. if I'm uh, if I'm trying to learn something, then I scatter it with little tidbits of things that I do find interesting. Um, and then you end up embedding all of it into your long-term memory. So, I, I, you know, curiosity is very, very powerful for us. And the things that we're curious about, we remember. Um, and this goes back to what we were talking about in the very beginning, that why is this being driven out of us? Because we're not given really the time and the freedom to have deep curiosity in school. It ends up having to be very surface. And therefore, we wonder why kids don't retain this stuff. Well, because it just didn't make enough of an impact um, from a curiosity point of view for it to be embedded. Yeah, that made me think of, are you familiar with uh, chat GPT at all? Or know what that yes. is? Okay. Yeah. So that's one of the things that it made me think about because just recently, you know, I've, you know, just started exploring it and, you know, I mentioned, um, you know, getting more into story. And one of the things I'm trying to become better at is, uh, <laughs> is like story analysis and like identifying the themes and everything. And that's one thing that I found that I imagine it can help for a lot of different things. And curiosity of chat GPT is like typing in the story, typing in an analysis. And that almost like the way that I thought about it is it's almost like a springboard to like further curiosity or like at home, it, it gets you moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, this is a perfect example of where technology can be used for good or not. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you're using it as this incredible curiosity tool. I find Google is the same thing. I mean, social yeah. network, I found that article about, you know, the women in the middle ages just on yeah. my Instagram page. So, you know, it was great um, when it's curated, when it's controlled. But of course, if someone uses ChatGPT and puts in write my, um, you know, write a, a term paper yeah. for me about women in the middle ages, then yeah. they don't fall rabbit hole because chat GPT is going to aggregate all of the, you know, primary data and say, and they probably won't get the cool women who owned pubs or, yeah. you know, or whatever. So I think yeah. that it's, it's, it can like so much, it can be used as an incredible tool. We just want to recognize, you know, what is it doing to us? Um, what is it doing to our own thinking? Is it enhancing it? Is it helping us get deeper or is it actually keeping us at the surface? Yeah. Uh, the next stage is Whittle, and that's all about absorption. And one of the things that um, I just wanted to ask about that is like, what, like, what are some of the practices that can help us better at, you know, absorption? You talked about encode, like encoding it into our memory and remembering it longer. What are some of the things that can help us do that or get better yeah. at retaining what we've learned? So absorption is is really um, is really connected to. So we talk about absorption, and absorption um, is tested in a couple of different ways. One of the ways that we can identify absorption is through what's known as flow. So flow is a work state, usually that um, where the work that we're doing is the perfect balance between um, easy but not too easy. And then cognitively challenging, but not too cognitively challenging. So you don't want it to be so mm -hmm. easy that it's boring and then you bail, but you don't want it to be so hard that it becomes too difficult. So you bail. So it's really that sweet spot right in between. And when you're in flow, you just literally forget time. You forget your own human needs. You don't feel like you need to eat or sleep. This is where you go, oh my God, how is it four in the morning? And I've been working on this project yeah. all night. 
So that kind of thing. So one of the challenges, if flow becomes too deep, then you may not notice wonder. But if it's sort of like it's just in that right zone, then it allows for that aha moment, which is a type of wonder. Or we can just talk about more traditional absorption, which um, can, we can really practice absorption by daydreaming. I mean, that is one of the great ways that we become mm -hmm. absorbed and a way to sort of practice that absorption muscle. There's also some really interesting research around people who play role-playing games or who enjoy immersive um, books or films. Fantasy is another super, you talked about world building. So yeah. um, any yep. kind of um, stories that have a deep world building component, great for absorption. And when we engage in those sorts of things, even like they found kids who played Dungeons and Dragons even, um, because they were always making up these different stories, um, they tended to be more absorbed. They had that benefit and then in turn ended up also being more empathetic. So this is another interesting empathy connection because when people become truly absorbed in another person where they're like, oh my God, I want your world. I want to understand yeah. your world, world yeah. building in essence. What was your whole backstory that made you want to become, you know, that became this person? That becomes like a major component of empathy. And so I think that that's fascinating, the idea that we can become absorbed, not just in ideas, but in other people, um, mm -hmm. and that that helps us connect to them more deeply. Yeah. Can you touch on or elaborate more on like what makes that, like what, maybe what's happening in our brain that makes that like so attractive to us to where it, it is literally like, I can't get enough of this yeah. world building, learning about this person's world, so on and so forth. So some of that is actually going to be based on our personality. So absorption can be a um, a state and some absorption sort of a bit strange. And I talked to a lot of different scientists about this and everybody was like, we're not really sure. So when we talk about state and traits, so state is something that happens based on what's occurring in the environment at that moment. And then trait is something that we build based on our personality. And by the time we're about 25, it's pretty set. And many are a combination of both. The So for example, you know, um, openness is purely a trait. It, by the time we're 25, it's pretty much set. It can shift a little bit, but it's not necessarily changed by the environment we're in. Curiosity is most definitely a state and a trait. So something mm -hmm. can make us curious. We can like, you know, smell something and go, what, what is that? but also have a natural tendency that's set. Now, absorption people aren't really clear on, and some say it's probably a little bit of both, and some say maybe it's only state. So what I would say is that probably there, I believe that probably there's a part of us that is innate, that if, we, that if we're that kind of person, we just find that compelling. But then mm -hmm. the other element of it is that if it is detailed, if there's a richness there, then we want to explore that richness. We like detail. We like stories. Our brains like to have that coherence. We like to um, connect to um, other people and it becomes a way for us to feel connection in an, in, in, that f would be otherwise abstract, but then it becomes a very real, real feeling for us. And so I think that absorption quality, the reason that we like it is that our, also our brains like it, right? Our brains like to pair away all the extraneous noise that's going on and then to just fall into this place with these other characters or these other stories. So I think it's almost a way for our brain to focus its energies. And that's very comforting to us as well. Mm, yeah. Talk to me about uh, compression and release and how we can better, like, that. that's 
that's the one that as, a, as I was going through it, I'm like, okay, how can I, how can I be, how can I work together with this natural process of compression and release? So I love this. I remember when I, um, I toured, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's Taliesin, um, out in sort of Scottsdale, Arizona and, um, and noticed this because it, at first, before I took the tour, um, I thought this is very strange, you know, these spaces there, this shouldn't work from an architectural point of view. You know, these, these, um, hallways are so cramped and dark. And then as you come out of them, then you're into these big vaulting mm-hmm. spaces with light and high ceilings and you go, wow, okay. And that's literally, you say, wow, which is the awe moment. And then they explained that this was actually a technique that um, that Wright developed where he wanted people to feel a sense of cramp and, oh goodness, this is a bit uncomfortable. So that the differential between that cramp space and then the light and the large area would feel that much greater. And that's really a key lesson in this idea of compression and release, that our brain notices newness. And really that's about it. We're in autopilot. We've talked about how our brain leans on these heuristics, these, um, you know, these shortcuts that we use. And so it takes something new for us to notice. And this is a very ancient mechanism of our brain. And I like to make the joke in the book that even going back to the Jurassic Park dinosaurs, you know, if you moved very still, they wouldn't notice you because there's nothing changing. So when we create an opportunity for a big change, our brain really pays attention. And we can also have the idea of compression and release of ideas. Um, I find compression and release is a design feature. You Once you notice it, you really see it in museums. They're very good at that, where you'll go through museums and it'll be a dark room and it's smaller and it feels very intimate. And then you come into the next room and it's very big and tall ceilings and lots of light. And once you start to notice it, you realize that this is a design feature getting you to go, oh, oh, look, this is very new. It's not just, oh, it's another room. So I think that from a physical point of view, we can see that. It's also in wonder walks or in nature, why we like um, being on a mysterious route and then coming around a corner and then seeing a big field or a vista. So that moment of surprise almost that gives us that, that, that change. So Compression and release really is the moment that becomes the potential catalyst. It's like the launching off point for um, for awe. And that's where you connect absorption, which can be sometimes for some people, it feels like a bit of a, um, uh, as you say, a bit of a nebulous concept that yeah. it's, well, what is absorption? Okay, I know when I'm sort of focused on something, but what it is, is it's about paring down that attention so that we have the opportunity to really, really hone in on that next new thing that will potentially give us the sense of awe. Yeah, I even I even thought about it, and I'd I'd love your I'd love to run this by you and just see if this you know fits in that in the compression mode too. Um, it almost made like what came to my mind is like whatever you're like creating a talk or and you know maybe you're creating a book or you know you're working on some some type of. Um, you know, work of art. And it's almost like paring it down to like, okay, so I've, you know, I've absorbed all of this data. I've absorbed, done all of this research, but this is like, this is the single idea. This is exactly what this is about. And then it almost like releases like, okay, so Mm. now I build everything around this. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that 
one of the things that I would have loved, but again, the book is already 400 yeah. pages. Um, yeah. but what I, I had started to write and actually had to take out was a whole thing on just your like Eureka moments, which in essence is sort of also what you're talking about, where you start to distill, distill, distill down until it almost becomes like a little atom bomb. And oh my goodness, okay, now yeah. we've come out the other side of this thinking um, and I love this expression that um, Lloyd Trefethen uses about like uh, reducing the intellectual diameter of an idea. So sometimes we have to take mm -hmm. these huge, you know, uh, overwhelmingly woolly and, you know, lots of different strands. And then we're almost like knitting them down into this nice little, you know, complex cord almost. And then it starts to come off in pieces again. But then at that point, it is not um it's not as un undefined then you can really start to see the the different ways that pieces connect and the dots that they connect in but yes absolutely i love the idea of reducing the intellectual diameter of a problem and i think from that can come the in essence an intellectual or a cognitive wow moment as opposed to it being just a a natural or social wow moment mm. Yeah, you mentioned that you had to cut the eureka moment. Is there anything else that, like, again, that you wish, like, hey, I wish I could have talked more about this in the book. Or I wish I could have added added this. Yeah, part. absolutely. There's even a so there is a bonus chapter. If you buy the book, you can go online and get a bonus chapter. I ha I have a bonus chapter about relationships, about love and relationships, mm -hmm. because um, I started thinking about how wonder can be a mechanism for bringing us closer to one another. I talked about even just mm -hmm. saying to someone, what's your wonder bringer? Because it's yeah. something that's so yeah. primal. One of the challenges I see in our relationships is that we, we, we don't give enough weight, enough gravitas to the things that give us wonder. And so we might say, oh, that makes so-and-so happy. We talk about the idea of love languages. I think that wonder could be almost like a yeah. love language. Then I use the example in this bonus chapter of a dear friend of mine who loves music, but it's not just that she loves music. It is her wonder bringer. She even says that for her music is her church. Like it is how she connects yeah. with her sense of a higher entity. And as she got older and had children, her sibling was like, well, obviously you're going to stop going to concerts. Right. And she said, well, why? No, I'm going to slap some of those giant, you know, earphones on my kid and I'm going to keep going. Well, this created a real falling out. The sibling thought that she was being irresponsible when she was a bad mom. And it's actually created a real conflict. They're not close anymore. And so what I believe that if we could honor the language of wonder and have, you know, my friend say to her sibling, look, you know what? This is my wonder bringer. It is about who I am fundamentally as a person. And it's how I self transcend. You know, it is important to me that maybe then we would start to appreciate these things that are really powerful to us. And then we could share it. So someone would say, that's my wonder bringer too. And I can see how in like even a, a partnership. So, you know, uh, between um, if, if say my husband's um, wonder bringer was going on, you know, day long hikes in the Adirondacks and mine is going to a gig. And then he says, that's just, you know, it seems like, why, why do you like doing that? And I'm like, well, you know, nature is nice, but does it have to be the whole day? And so then yeah. you end up thinking, oh, we just don't have the same hobbies. No, it's not like wood, you know, wood whittling and, and, and making models. It's, it's not about hobby. It's about something that is 
fundamental to our makeup as human beings. And so I believe that there is a potential for us to use wonder as a mechanism for creating stronger, loving relationships. And so that's the bonus chapter. I would have loved to have explored that. Maybe that'll be in the next book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's something that I've thought about too. I don't have kids right now, but that's something that I've um, thought about just as if I have kids like inviting and I, and I, again, I already said it, but I love that. Like, what's your wonder bringer and almost like inviting Ooh. people into like, Hey, this is mine. You may love it. And if so, that's great. And we can spend more time doing that or this is yours and I can participate in that. But, um, yeah, I just love it. it. It's Again, a just... quintessential collective emotion. You know, wonder shared yeah. is wonder multiplied. So if you can find your wonder bringers and share it with other people, it's incredible. If you can do it solo and you prefer, but then tell the yeah. story of it to someone else, yeah. then that yeah. multiplies it. So I think really having that, that you know, your wonder posse, if you will, yeah. it could be really powerful. And I talk about that in the book as well, the idea of having a Perea. So a group of a friend circle that is connected in some ways simply by sharing the wonder of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The last, uh, you know, the last element that we haven't touched on yet is that wow and that uh, whoa moment. And, you know, you you briefly touched on vastness and accommodation as yes. one of the components of that. Can you elaborate a little bit more on sure. what each of those are and even give an example of like kind of what that could look like? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So vastness is the moment when we experience something that um, is so vast and that vast can be physical vastness. So it can be like looking out at a mountain range or um, at an incredible, you know, building that that is uh, very tall and impressive. Um, or it can be intellectual vastness. So it can be an idea that is so big and um, that that it makes us pause and feel like we're a, um, a, a smaller component of a bigger system. And then accommodation is the moment where because our brain is struck with this moment where we go, wait a minute, this is new. This is new enough that it makes me feel in perspective a different way. So now our brain has to create new schema. We talked about all the schema that we sort of lean on that are our building blocks. Well, now this is big enough that we have to create a building block that represents that. And so then we create this accommodation where if if our brain experienced it and went, oh yeah, that's just a building and then put it into another, to an existing schema, that would be known as assimilation. We'd say, I know what a building is. I know what it looks like. I'm assimilating it. It goes back into a box I already have. But when you go, no, this is so different that I actually need to under reconceive my concept of what yeah. a building is, that's accommodation. And then because of that, your brain is actually changed now. So the lens through which you see the world is forever different. Now, one of the points I want to make that I think is really important is that when, um, say, Dr. Keltner first started researching awe, he felt that awe would only happen um, when it was um, fleeting and rare. So he used that language. This is another, um, someone else uh, who we've uh, most people have heard of, Maslow, when he talks about peak mm -hmm. experience, peak experience is sort of a type of all. He also said the peak experience in the beginning of his research was fleeting and rare. It's something that only happens very rarely. But now what we know is we can experience awe in the quotidian, meaning we can experience it in our day-to-day -day life. But the key is you have to pay attention because our day-to-day -day life is generally filled with process, right? It's routine. 
We have a routine. We go to the same places. We usually go to the same place for work. We have coffee. We pee in the same stall. You know, it's like, it's just, we're always, generally, we're like, I like the middle. Um, So it's like, we have all these routines. Well, routines make us stop noticing things. So if we are willing to stop and really try to notice, we, it doesn't, awe does not have to be fleeting and rare. And it's actually the reason I didn't write the book about awe. I started researching awe as one of the components of wonder. And I felt that awe felt too, um, too distant, too much like you're waiting for it to happen to you. And I wanted people to know that wonder is a mindset, not a moment. So it's not that we're always waiting for this moment to occur. We can create a mindset that becomes almost like a wonder catcher, right? Like, uh, and we're we're scooping these moments into our noggin so that we can analyze all the little moments of wonder. So when I talk about vastness, it doesn't have as we become more attuned to the vastness just of existence then we don't have it it doesn't have to be seeing the grand canyon for the first time kind of vastness it doesn't have to see be your kid walking you know taking their first steps kind of vastness it can simply be the most perfect spring daffodil that you swear was not there yesterday and now has sprung from the earth perfectly formed and that can be enough for the whole day to just go wow and then, whoa, and that's the accommodation of really the world is so much more wondrous than I expected. Mm, yeah. You know, another thing that you touched on, on awe, which was, it, it, it was, a, it just, it really got me thinking, is you talk about the negative side of awe yeah. too. And so can you talk about, like, I love how, I think you say it this way, the erasure or the erasure of um of the negative aspect. Can you talk about like what led to that or kind of some yeah. of the things behind that and kind of what negative awe can look like? Absolutely. So part of what makes awe so powerful is again, it's a mixed emotion. So I'll talk a little bit about this idea of valence emotion. So how Happiness is always positively valenced. It's a the term mm-hmm. valence, you use it in electricity, but psychologists also use it to mean basically the tone of an emotion. So po- happiness is always positively valenced. It's always positive. Fear is always negatively valenced. It's always a negative emotion. But we have certain emotions that can hold two at the same time. So curiosity is duly valenced. It's it can be happy, but we can be curiosity curious about negative things too, right? We can rubberneck a you know a, a terrible accident. That's not necessarily positive. Well, awe is the same way. Awe allows us to hold both positive and negative in our brain at the same time. But one and and if we look at the ancient historical and etymological. Um, uh, history of the word awe and the experience of it, it has always had those two elements. It's had the the elation, but also the trembling. But the challenge is, is that in particular Western society and almost largely American society has pushed the negative out, right? The number of times we say awesome, right? That's just an expression. And Mm-hmm. Americans definitely and the Western world have pushed the negative out. They, when they describe awe and they use the different terms of what they see awe, there's almost no more of that fear and trembling left. But if you look at um, nations like in the global South, if you look at more collectivist nations, um, Asia, um, Latin American countries, 
they still tend to hold a lot more of that fear and trembling element of awe. And I think that when we erase the negative, it is to our detriment because it's the duly valence nature of awe that is make is so positive for us. It's what makes us more resilient. It's what helps us understand and see nuance and see the depth. So I think that that erasure is to our detriment. But let me talk a little bit more about then the full negative component. So the yeah. reason that um, awe can become negative is because in that moment of accommodation, what we're basically doing when we have the wow moment and go, wow, that was incredible and now mind blown, accommodation means that we've created a highly plastic state, right? So our brains now are really malleable and they're just sucking up what they've experienced. Now, if what they suck up and what gets implanted in that experience is positive, like, oh my goodness, the world is so much bigger than I recognize and I'm just one component part and it's incredible, that's positive. Or, you know, the earth is so beautiful, we must protect it, that's positive. But what can be implanted in it can also be negative and that's how we end up in cults. And so one of the big ways that we can feel um, awe is through charisma. I will say that charisma is certainly a wonder bringer to me. If you hear an incredible speaker um, that moves you, then that creates a plastic state. It's how we end up getting social movements in a positive way, right? You know, Martin Luther King, incredibly charismatic speaker, people would have followed him to the ends of the earth because he did implant in it positive elements. But we can also look at Jim Jones from almost the same era. And what Jim Jones did, again, very charismatic, but what he implanted in the brain was negative. So what happens then point is you've created this collectivist emotion that draws people together more strongly than pride. You have created an environment where people want to be more pro-social, meaning we want to give up more of ourselves in um, contribution to a bigger ideal, which is usually good. But then you implant something negative and you can see how quickly then you become, you can create negative movements or cults and cult of personalities where people say, mm -hmm. I'll follow this person to the ends of the earth. They have moved me and I believe in what they're telling me and I will give parts of myself in pursuit of what it is that they've told me that I should believe. And that can be really, really powerful. We just want to be aware of when awe is being used in a negative way. And I think we can see yeah. that. We can probably all come up with certain types yeah. of people like that in our minds where we go, they're charismatic and they're implanting negative things in order to drive that behavior. So we just want to recognize when sometimes awe can be used for the negative. The dark side mm -hmm. of awe is what I call it. Yeah. Well, I have just a couple of questions that I want to ask. Uh, but before that, I always love just giving people the opportunity to just say, hey, is there anything else, you know, in in the couple of questions I'm going to ask are about the book, but is there anything just like top of mind that you want to make sure that we cover? Yeah. Well, I think when people say, you know, what's the one takeaway that you want people to have from this book? The takeaway for me is I want people to just know that there is more, you know, and that's the point mm -hmm. I make at the end. Mm -hmm. We live our life in routine. We live our life so often just seeing, thinking we know pretty much everything there is to know about how we operate. But I just want people to recognize that there's more. There's so much more untapped, unseen that we don't understand. And it's almost like 
for anybody who lives in a city, I'm in New York or London most of the time. It's like that voice you hear through a wall. Right now, somebody that's living above me is a musician and I can just barely hear these little strains of someone singing or someone playing a guitar. It's very, you can't put your finger on it, but you know it's there. I want people to know that there is a veil that separates us from what we think we know and what is the rest of the world that's not yet understood. And to be willing to tap into that little bit that you hear and to keep just trying to discern it rather than shut it down. You know, along with that, one of the ideas um, in our pursuit of more, in our pursuit of wonder, is you talk about this idea of easy questions and hard questions. Can Mm. you tease out what that looks like and maybe even give like an example of what those can look like? Yeah, so easy questions are the questions that while we may not have answers to, we probably have a system by which we can find them. So an easy question might be like, um, you know, why, why when I put my hand on the stove, do I feel pain? And you can talk about, okay, well, there's receptors and your brain see, you know, your your brain senses them and then there are neurons. And so that could be an example of an easy question. And it might not be necessarily always easy to understand, and there might be nuances that change, but like Mm -hmm. a hard question would be, why does consciousness get, you know, why does matter give rise to consciousness? So this Mm -hmm. idea of why as humans, do we have consciousness? Because consciousness is the basis for everything. It's basis for our ideas of morality, why we interact with each other, why we do anything other than like an amoeba, just eat and, you know, and and rest and die eventually. And so that's the kind of idea of a hard question. And that's where we move from science into philosophy, where scientists go, I can't answer that. And even when we talked about psychedelics, where I asked some of them, what is Where are people going during this period of a psychedelic trip that heals them? And they say, I don't know that that's a question science can answer, but where it is, it's fixing them. So it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing I want to ask you about is this idea of unlearning. Would you talk about in our pursuit of wonder, even in the pursuit of like those hard questions, we're going to encounter stuff that just goes against that schema that you talked about. Can you talk about that process and, and how to... Like, I don't feel like you can control necessarily what's happening, but as as much as we can, what can help us in that process? Absolutely. So one of the challenges, a statistic I use, and I'll uh, hopefully get it right because it's always changing. I've been quoting the statistic for a decade and every few years it shifts. But at this point now, a kid who graduates from high school will have, I believe the, the, the number now is um, uh, 18 jobs in six industries. So we talk about, you know, if we talk maybe to my, I'm 50, if I talk to someone who is parents age, they would say, you want to be a job hopper, you know, oh God, that was the worst thing to be a job hopper. And now kids are going to have so many different jobs. And that means you have to be learning and unlearning at a huge rate. We already see the way that, that, um, we, that technology is changing and that skills we used to have just seem now almost just not even useful. And then we have to have new skills. The problem is there's only so much cranial real estate in our noggin. And so when we talk about neuroplasticity, what starts to happen when we're young is we're super plastic. And then um, uh, the, the gentleman who sort of developed the term neuroplasticity is a guy named Alvaro Pascal, Pascal Leone. And what he did is he described our brains as a ski slope. So imagine that 
were born and the shape of the slope is pretty much developed by our um uh to some degree by our personality at that point right so the half of us that is nature so we're born and we have a ski slope that's a certain way but then our behavior starts to create the ruts that we go down so as we ski down this mountain we create different neural pathways and over time it doesn't take that many routes down that we just start following into the same rut. It becomes very, very hard to not take the same path down. Well, as we learn new information, our brain doesn't can't just make the ski slope bigger, right? What it has to do is almost clear the piste so that we can lay new tracks. If it doesn't, then it's going to be very, very hard for us to unlearn what we knew before and relearn something else. There's only so much you can layer on top over and over again. But wonder is a mechanism that helps us unlearn. It's that plasticity that I was talking about. So when we experience something that either if it's like the curiosity vortex part of wonder or the awe part of wonder, that creates a plastic state that then allows us to get rid of information that we maybe don't need as much anymore, and then re-implant new information. So that element of unlearning is really important. And it's unlearning systems, it's unlearning behaviors, it's unlearning biases. There's all sorts of things that will help be helpful for us to unlearn. But there is um, a, uh, a an academic and a, a basically a... Um, a learning professional who says that the illiterate of the 21st century will not be about people who can read and write. His name is Alan Tefler, Alvin Tefler. He says it won't be about people who can read and write. It'll be about people who are able to functionally learn and unlearn as efficiently as possible. Yeah. Well, Monica, I know that people are going to want to get the book, The Power of Wonder, and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Yeah, they can find me at monica-parker.com or you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Monica C. Parker. So I would love to connect with anybody who listens to this and continue the conversation. Awesome. Well, Monica, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for the wonderful conversation and just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. There's so many different things from this conversation that just had me just thinking so, so much and even just reflecting on many of my own, just my own relationship to wonder. I think the first thing that really stands out to me is just that question of what's your wonder bringer and the the invitation that 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 is to allow other people to, to come into our lives if if they end up asking that question of us or that invitation to entering into another person's world and discovering what what uh, what wonder follows them or what wonder they follow and I think the other thing at least off of um, that right now is standing out to me is just the the difference between vastness and accommodation that we talked about. And thinking about it almost in terms of accommodation is finding room in the world of knowledge that you already have. And vastness is 
almost being introduced into a new world as well. And you can learn different, and like accommodation is like learning different aspects of the world of which you already know. And vastness is engaging in a world that you didn't know even existed before. And so, or you, or you didn't think was possible. And so I think one of the ideas that I'm toying around with, you know, an example of vastness is pirate culture, because that's one of the things that I'm learning about right now. And I think it's the difference between not really knowing anything about pirate culture and being introduced to that, that vast world that it is versus learning about specific pirates or learning about specific rules after you already have a familiarity with the world of which you live in. And so maybe it's more like being introduced to to a new world is vastness and learning about how that world works, the characters in that world, you know, if we're if we're going to go like a story-wise aspect of it, learning about how those characters operate, the rules of which it the rules of which it works i don't know but that that difference between vastness and accommodation is definitely a very fascinating idea for me and one of the things that really has me thinking and so yeah if you want to keep up with me and you know uh, all of my pirate recommendations or any other things that i'm currently learning about you know you can subscribe to my Substack to where I send you all of the different things that I am currently learning from and some of the things that I'm learning about, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you know, quotes, movies, etc. You know, just the, the whole gamut in it. And so, yeah, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Monica for being on the podcast today and for such a wonderful conversation. This is such a great book. Highly recommend that you pick it up. And thank you to St. Massey for creating the music for this podcast as well. And thank you for listening all the way to the end. My name is Caleb Mason. Until next time, keep learning and keep growing.